As members of Christ Church know, our worship follows an annual liturgical calendar structured around the life of Jesus. Starting in December with Advent and Christmas, by April working its way into Lent and Easter, then the birth of the Church, and a prolonged period through summer and fall considering what it all meant. That's the season we're currently in. Each Sunday has assigned readings on a three-year cycle called the lectionary, which includes passages from Hebrew scripture, the letters and history books of the New Testament, and one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. For virtual church, we've generally pared that down to just two readings, normally including the gospel lesson. So, for instance, today we heard Isaiah addressing the Hebrews' return to their promised land after a long exile, and a passage from Matthew written many centuries later, recounting a certain episode in Jesus' life. No matter the year, this particular passage, interestingly, will always be read in August, which means that pre-COVID, it came up during my usual vacation time or season of invited guest preachers. And as a result, I realized this week that I can't remember ever preaching on this text. I certainly know it well, I've taught it, wrestled with it, but never had to address it in a worship service. But here it is. And it's a particularly difficult text because it doesn't seem to portray Jesus in an especially positive light. Now, churches that don't follow the lectionary will rarely encounter a text like this in worship because of its difficulty. Honestly, it's sort of tempting to ignore it or to focus on one of the other options for the day, but that seems a bit of a cop-out. You won't hear a motivational message from Joel Osteen referencing this or from any of the media preachers for that matter. That's because it's a really tough passage and doesn't lend itself to simple explanation. If you pay attention today, I'm pretty sure the story will stick with you. But then, counterintuitively, it just might make you a tad more hopeful about yourself, about the possibility of your own ability to wake up into a larger version of yourself, someone more capable of love. That's how it's tracking for me. Now, remember what Matthew reported. Initially, we heard Jesus admonishing various Israelites about the limits of ritual behavior, and by default, the problem of religious hypocrisy. Specifically, addressing rituals around food preparation, he explains that it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. Food follows nature's track through our digestive system, but what comes out of the mouth has its origins in the heart. To eat with unwashed hands, for instance, does not defile. What defiles is the evil that comes out of the mouth. He tells the disciples that his critics are blind to their own corruption. This is consistent with the Jesus we remember confronting religious leaders with the hypocrisy of their piety while missing the mark on what matters most, namely loving God above all things and one loving one's neighbor as oneself. Love and justice, in other words. But then the story takes a sharp curve 
when he's confronted by a foreign woman, a non-Jew, who seeks healing for her daughter. The story initially puts Jesus in bad light. As Bruce Epperly points out, Jesus appears to internalize the worst attitudes of Jews toward non-Jews at this time. It has an overtone of racist tribalism. Recall their exchange. The woman shouts at Jesus to help her daughter. Initially, he ignores her, and the disciples tell him to send her away. He observes that, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, she's outside the boundary of my intention. I'm focusing on my own people. And when she persists, he ups the ante, saying, It's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Oof. Harsh. Not the Jesus of our imaginations, is it? But even this put-down doesn't deter her from getting what she wants, ultimately leading him to say, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Well, what are we to make of this exchange? Again, taking Bruce Epperly's lead, one theory has it that Jesus was testing her, trying to figure out how badly she wants her daughter's healing. But what compassionate person tests a desperate mother seeking the healing for her child? We couldn't countenance an emergency room physician refusing to treat a child based on their ethnicity or roughly put down a parent prior to treatment. Another theory suggests the story is actually a parable. Jesus is purposely articulating his people's racism, and when he gets the assent of everyone in the room, he pulls the rug out from under them by curing the Canaanite woman's daughter. He will heal her, and in the process, teach his fellow Israelites about God's all-embracing love. While each of these offer nuanced perspectives, I'm thinking it's best to take the story at face value. That's how Matthew seems to treat it. And in that light, we have a rather compelling narrative about Jesus' own process of growing into the full ramifications of what he already knows to be fundamentally true. And you'll note that in this healing, he contradicts what he had just said a short while ago. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He grew up with the words of Isaiah, which he quotes more than any other book from the Hebrew Scriptures. And what did Isaiah say in the passage we read today? That the reconstituted Hebrew nation would gladly welcome foreigners. Thus says the Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to them. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's a stunningly generous proclamation that lies behind Jesus' own self-understanding. It's just that in that moment, it seems he was caught off guard with the Canaanite woman who, from out of her poverty and desperation, recharged Jesus' deep commitment to bringing light and healing to all peoples. Taking the Gospels full on, we know that his message is meant for all people everywhere. Matthew's version of Jesus' story includes 
a visit to his birth manger of several so-called wise men or magi, exotic foreigners, right there at the beginning to affirm his identity. And the gospel ends with Jesus instructing his friends to go out into the world making disciples of all nations. Well, these serve as bookends to his life. So then right here, smack in the middle of this trajectory, we have this stunning example of authentic faith, unbounded by any external condition, but arising from the heart of the woman and then of Jesus as well. Seen in this light, this story surprises us in an especially helpful and challenging manner, especially at this particular moment in our national life. How many Christians have recently been caught up short on the matter of who is found acceptable in God's sight and who isn't? Who belongs to us and who doesn't? Who is worth, worthy of divine favor and who isn't? Then considering the ramifications of realizing that belovedness exists beyond our instinctive tribal boundaries and barriers. Just what does it mean? to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus leads the way in our enlightenment here, literally embodying what it looks like to wake up to God's way in the world, in the moment, despite his instinctive cultural baggage. Do you see it? Do you see it? How many Christians who say that above all else they love God and neighbor, all neighbors, and still find it extremely difficult to receive them as equals in both love and justice. Could it be all of us? How many Christians struggle with coming to terms with tribalist, semi-conscious ideas about race and gender and sexual identity and political identity and, well, just about any other distinguishing characteristic within the astonishingly diverse human family? Doesn't this issue sit at the root of most of our cultural heartache and violence? Earlier in our passage today, Jesus said his critics were like the blind leading the blind in their refusal to see what was obvious. That righteousness was not dependent upon external conditions, but an internal disposition. And in the case of the Canaanite woman, not dependent upon her race, religion, or gender, all external conditions. Honestly, friends, pondering this passage confronts me directly. I am so cleverly well defended against believing I have work to do, uncovering my own biases and prejudices, my own tribalist tendencies, my instinct to privilege my critique of others, as in judging the speck in others' eyes as a method of overlooking the log in my own. And yet, here's Jesus demonstrating and confirming the way forward of choosing to act differently than what his cultural instincts predicted. What a great comfort to realize that we are not simply fixed, 
but works in progress, that we can actually rise above our smaller boundaried selves into a larger and closer approximation of what God intended in the first place. And here then, I'll leave you with a pithy bit of wisdom penned by Maya Angelou. Do the very best you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better. <laughs>